0: If you've got your Bibles, will you turn over to the book of Ecclesiastes with me? The book of Ecclesiastes is going to be in chapter 10. And uh, while you're turning there, let me say something. Uh, Thank you. Thank you for your investment. Not only in Pastor Zach, you know, trusting me in his pulpit to preach the Word of God. But there are a lot of people in this room that have invested in my life. I used to drive the roads here as a drunk teenager whose parents were trying their best to live for God, whose dad was trying his best to preach the gospel, and his son lived the life of a lunatic, basically. Throughout my school years, I was a good boy. I did the yes ma'am and the no ma'am, and the yes sirs, and the no sirs, but I can't tell you how many times I passed by this church in my lost and inebriated condition and sinful state, and I used to be one of those kids across the street over there when we first moved here in 1982 from Fultondale, and uh, they would drop me off from the school bus, and I'd have to go over there and sit and wait with people till my mom and dad got off work, and they'd pick me up, and, uh, then something happened at the end of my 11th grade year while I was at Mortimer-Jordan High School in 1994. I had this thing called boyfriend-girlfriend religion. I had to go to church because if I wanted to date the girl, I had to go to church with her every now and then. And in Gardendale Church of God, yes, I'm a Baptist that got saved in a Pentecostal church. And they call me Baptocostal, even to the point where Donnie asked me, are you going to be doing a lot of moving around today? Do we need a cameraman? I said, I'll stay behind the pulpit. I can't help it. I have the Holy Ghost. We talked about that a while ago. I have the Holy Ghost too, amen. And uh, when I got saved, I wanted people to know Jesus. That's all I knew. I didn't know anything else, but I wanted my friends to be saved. They let me speak at first priority. I cried the whole time. And the reason I cry all the time, like Zach talks about, is because I tried to spend my life being tough. I tried to spend my life letting no one see me cry. But when I got saved, God says, I'll fix that. I'll just make you cry all the time. But investments such as Brother Kent, Brother Kent McWilliams. See, God put it on my heart to get a tent, a very religious tent that was holy in all forms and fashions. From the State Board of Missions one time and parked that thing across the street from Funtime Skate Center in Hill, Alabama, all because I wanted to preach the gospel and I wanted somebody to be saved. And I used to go to these churches and knock on their doors and say, can I come and tell them about, we're going to have a revival. You know, Glenwood let me come, others let me come. And Brother Ken, your investment into my life, I know you may not remember it because you're getting older now. (laughs) He let me come over in the other building over there and uh, to be able to speak to the youth at that time and to invite them out to a revival. Where you may think it was no big deal, but we saw four people come to Christ and... uh, People made investments. Not only that, my mom and my dad are here. They've made some of the largest investments in my life. My wife and her her small hands of prayer, when she puts them on me, are some of the biggest deposits in my life. But there are many people in this building who have invested and who many people thought would never amount to anything. And I just hope that today you'll receive some of the dividends of your investment. Brother John Hembrot, Brother Stanley Kilgore, Brother Steve Loggins, many of the people in here. I'll never be able to thank you enough. I think they saved the last one this week because I am the least of all apostles and the chief of all sinners. Maybe they saved the last one because I'm the ugliest. But Billy is in close running with me. Maybe they saved the last one because I seem to look the oldest because I'm the only one that has no hair. But we all found out how spiritual my hairdo is because we just sang a song that says there'll be no parting over there. (laughs) Amen. You'll get that when you get home. If you don't understand, just go ask Ken. He'll tell you later on. I love Jesus. I love you. You may not think that I love you. You may think you don't even know who I am. I love you. I, I, I love people. Um, I am a long-winded preacher. I am. I hate to say that because I know you've already determined that I'm going to shut you off, brother. Uh, Please don't turn me off. I hope that you're like me and maybe you brought a snack because I have to have them. If I get midway through the message and I go long, I know now to bring a muffin or an apple. you don't like that. Kyle needs to be here. Kyle said last night about four times. That's funny right there. I don't care who you are, right. But uh, I'll just leave it there in case I get hungry a little bit. I want to preach to you, and I'll try not to take much time. But I want to preach to you this morning about small things. Small things. You know, I'll never forget listening to a man preach the Word of God who probably weighed at that time nearly 400 pounds. So small was not really in his vocabulary. He preached a message in Jacksonville, Florida, The Fallacy of Bigness. It's a man who lives in a very small town. He doesn't live in New York City. He doesn't live in New Orleans. He doesn't hang around on Bourbon Street. But he lives in Hartsville, Alabama, and become one of my great friends, a prayer warrior, a person I could kind of bounce some things off of. And I watched Dr. Junior Hill stand up and preach a message about the fallacy of bigness. Because we think unless we are full in here today that God can't seem to meet with us. Or we think because we are at a certain age or we are young or we are older that there is some kind of insignificance that plays a factor in our lives. And it's just not true. It's not true because if you look at this, you don't see those words big. There is no big church. There is no little church. And I'm telling you right now, there are churches across Alabama. There are churches across our community who only have literally a handful of people. You can count on your hands the people they have in their sanctuary, but they are pouring tears out on the altar. They are begging God for the same revival that our churches are begging God for. They may have two people, and that consists of what they may call a choir, although it only will be a duet, but it doesn't matter because there's no big and there is no little, but there are things in the Bible that kind of teach us about how small things have a very powerful and a persuasive way. It can absolutely make an effect on each and every one of us. And so if you look at this scripture, the book of Ecclesiastes, in chapter number 10 and in verse number one, it says this, <clears throat> it says, Dead flies calls the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor or smell. So does a little folly in him that is of reputation for wisdom and of honor. We pray with me? Father, we ask you to please, Lord, as Brother Zach has prayed. God, as others have come to the altar already today and prayed. If you do not meet with us, if your spirit is not here with us, then God, it's all just simply just another fellowship gathering or just another meeting or just some kind of going through the motions. Our desire, God, is that you speak to us. Our desire today, Lord, and I know that the people's desire is that they do not hear what Steve Abney has to say because Steve Abney within himself is absolutely nothing But everything because of the Christ, because of the Holy Spirit of God, because of the love of the Father that's in the man of God. Lord, that's where we're searching from today. That's where we're drawing from today. God, you know my prayer. You know my heart's prayer throughout all the night. Lord, throughout even the early morning hours, is that you take as much as me and get rid of it so that you will be able to pour as much as you into this day. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Now, on this day, November the 9th, 1965, 57 years ago, that's a little bit before me and Brother Zach, okay? 57 years ago, on this day at 516, one of the greatest blackouts that ever happened in the United States took place. It took place over the Northeast uh, area of our country. It, ha- it started in Ontario. Uh, it went down into 11 states. Some of the states that it took over were were the places of uh, uh, Rhode Island and Massachusetts and Maryland and Delaware, New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, all of these places, and even all the way down to Vermont. Some of you may remember this. Some of you probably were old enough, if you only think 57 years ago, some of you were old enough to remember what had happened. All kinds of chaos ensued because it happened at probably the most... Uh, Insignificant time, or not insignificant, but the inopportune time that it could ever have happened. It was 5.16 p.m., and it all trickled down. And all of this happened in such a quick moment that it was during rush hour traffic in New York City. We all know that in the New York minute, things can change, right? Even the songwriters say that. But if you think back with me just for a moment, some of you that may have watched television in those days and can remember this, even Radio City, uh, they broadcasted. They had generators to power their cameras, but they didn't have enough power in the generators to do the cameras and the broadcast from Radio City in order to also do the lighting. And so one man broadcasted by a candlelight. He had a candlelight here, and he was telling everyone what was happening in New York City they come to the conclusion that over 80,000 square miles was affected by this blackout, the largest in the US history. They also said that there was a number of 800,000 people in New York City who were stranded in subways and in terminals and trains and other depots and stuff throughout that night that when the lights went out and it went dark, it went totally dark, except for the fact of being in November and around that time It was a full moon and that they could see that. They called in 10,000 National Guardsmen. They called up 5,000 off-duty police officers to go in their homes and scrounge up as much batteries and flashlights and candles that they could. And throughout that whole night, because this lasted for 13 hours in some places, throughout that whole night, people were directing traffic with flashlights. They were directing traffic with, with candle lights. What was cool about New York City back in those days, or in that day, in that night, is that everything shut down in such a way that it... It kind of stopped time for a moment, and people took pictures and, and they took recordings of how the people were in the restaurants and the fine dining. Everywhere else, all the modern places had to close down, but the fine dining restaurants to where you would take your, your, your wonderful, beautiful wife or your husband where you would have a romantic candlelight dinner. People were walking through the streets on 6th Avenue and 5th Avenue and the, the places that were fine dining, they were still just going at it you know, because they had the candlelight dinner and all of those things. It reminds me sometimes that we're so quick to take care of these Joshua lightings that we forget that sometimes we may need Moses. Amen. Sometimes you may need the Moses. And uh, to help you understand that, when when me and my dad worked contracting and building together, I remember when the the nail gun, especially the cordless nail gun come out. And I would tell my dad, I said, back up. We don't need that hammer anymore. And I'd go. Man, I was putting nails in left and right. And then all of a sudden, my air cylinders would run out or the fuel cylinders would go low and the nail would get stuck about that high. And I would go, oh, no, we got one sticking up. And he goes, oh, what do you mean to tell me? You need this old Moses on my side here? And he loved taking Moses out and just nailing it all down in there. You know, Moses was an investor, but Joshua got to take the people over. Sometimes we forget those things. You know, and on that night, this is what the news broadcast said. They said that, the, that although there was some looting and that there were some prison riots that were taking place in Boston and other areas, they said it was actually a kind of peaceful night throughout the whole night for those 13 hours in some of the places. It said that the, when the power grid went off like that, that it kind of ended up being an island kind of power grid, that only the people that were close to these certain areas had the power. And uh, the reporter said this, it's because of the integrity and the strength of the New Yorkers, it's the only reason that we made it through the night. I'll let you be the judge of that. I'll let Ken be the judge of that since he likes to hang out in New York City a lot of times. Many times we look at integrity... And we think that the definition of integrity is just something that is brought together, or that you know the integrity of these pews are very good because they're holding up our bodies, right? Uh, some of these integrities of these pews are a little bit better. Than, <laughs> I can't help it, but better than the other, especially if they're holding up this body versus your body, right? We look and think that it's just about kind of being in unity and conforming together, but that's not the true definition of integrity. And integrity, integrity, we find it in this scripture right here. Integrity, while you say these words, I really don't care what people think about me. You ever heard someone say that? I don't care what people think about me. You know, let people judge me. I don't care what they think. I've got to tell you, you should care what people think about you. You should be concerned with what people say, what people think about you, and how people feel about you. You know why? Because integrity is defined as this. It is the quality of being honest and having strong moral principles. People of integrity. It should not be that there are people of integrity and then there are Christians. It should be that the Christians are people of integrity. It should be that believers in Jesus Christ try to live in such a manner that's pleasing unto the Lord that it is also palatable and satisfying to the people standing by watching. But today we have lost that feeling. To say a term from the righteous brothers, we've lost that loving feeling. We've kind of set back and now we we go, I'm just going to be who I am and I don't care what people say about me and I'm just going to be this and do all these things. Listen, integrity was never defined as a group of people that would gang together and band together and bond together during a time of crisis, but it was defined as people who lived righteous and they had things called ethics, morals, and virtues about them that were clearly and evidently seen by other people. See, the problem in our lives is is that we get so wrapped up in we don't care, let the people judge, that for some reason we have gone from setting the thermostat to where it needs to be to either being at 90 degrees or at 50 degrees. That's uncomfortable either way. I don't want to go, especially church, and preach at a church that they got that thing set at 90 degrees. 50 would be fine but I don't want to set at 90 degrees. But some of you would say, I don't want to go where they set the thermostat to 50 degrees. You just freeze me to death. You know, one person says it like this about integrity and about character. A man's character is the expression of his true self. It is the express image of the invisible things that are inside that person. His reputation depends upon the manner in which he is viewed, which he has seen, which he has represented, and lived out into the eyes of society. How true is that? Integrity today. We need to look at the text. Look at the scripture one more time with me. It says, dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor. So doth a little folly him that is in reputation for wisdom and honor. What a word of God we have right here. This is an absolutely amazing word of God that we have. When you see that text over and over and over, we read this word. We know it's from God, but we also know that it's from Solomon. Or as he says in the opening of the book of Ecclesiastes, from the preacher. Amen. We want to hear from the preacher today. We want to hear from the Word of God today. It seems like this, this, this little text right here, Ecclesiastes chapter 10 and verse number 1, it seems like it's a continuation, doesn't it, from the book of Proverbs. You know, Proverbs, we read Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Some of you, you love that scripture. That's your favorite one. We kind of hang out there. But isn't it amazing that in the Proverbs you read this great foundational truth about a certain topic, a a certain uh, characteristic or a virtue that we need to have. But then you go down two more verses and he speaks a different virtue or a different topic. And it's just kind of sporadic that is through there because it is a book of wisdom. It's a very good book. has 31 chapters. It's very good for you if you do Bible study, if you're in the book of John or you're in the book of Ruth. It's good for you to daily, in the month, just just take the book of Proverbs and read one chapter a month. Just read it because it's a book of wisdom. And we know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We know that we want wisdom, that if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask God and he will give it to him freely. This is what we want. We want wisdom. Every day of our lives. That's what kept me up till past midnight. Give me wisdom. Give me wisdom, Lord. Give me wisdom. That's what woke me up at 4:30. Give me wisdom. When we get done with this, I'll be asking, give me rest. Amen. Listen, in a sense, Proverbs today, or, or even in this time, and in, in our understanding, I'll put it like this: this is what helps me out. Proverbs are much like parables. I have to be taught in parables sometimes. My education is not very, very good, okay? I know that you're not shocked by that, but my education is not very good, so I have to learn in parables. I almost learn by sight sometimes, and I really learn really good lessons by fumbling and failing a lot of times, okay? I'm in the school of hard knocks. But a proverb and a parable, they have these two things. First of all, they have a visual illustration, okay? They have this illustration that, that can be seen, but then it moves into a literal truth, Over and over, every proverb has a visual illustration. The holy sower went and sowed some seeds. Some fell by the wayside, some fell among the stony grounds. But they have a literal truth that's tucked away inside of that parable or inside of that proverb. And in this scripture, in a sense, it has like this double-edged sword. Ecclesiastes chapter 10 verse 1, it, it gives the hearer information that causes emotions to get to stir up. It begins to stir them up emotionally. But then afterwards, that hearer moves from just getting and receiving information, information, and now they're coming to an understanding which hopefully brings conviction, which then brings repentance. Because that's what we need and what we should desire more than anything else. You say, what do you mean, Brother Steve? I knew you were thinking that. What about the parable that Nathan brought to David when he was caught in the act of adultery. Can y'all imagine, first of all, Nathan, is it okay for me to like walk here? They said I could go to edge to edge, so I'm going to go edge to edge of the carpet. But listen, imagine, imagine Nathan, okay? God spoke to Nathan and said, hey, I need you to go speak to David. Okay, yes, sir. He, he's committed murder. David? What are you talking about? Well, he's a man of war. He, you know, he, he's fought and killed many people. Uh-uh. No, this is murder. He's committed murder. You got to be kidding me, Lord. And he says, yes, yes. Well, how in the world did this happen, you know? And it was Uriah. He killed Uriah. Uriah, why would he kill Uriah? Because he slept with his wife. David? And God says, yes. Now I want you to go talk to him. What? Pick somebody else. Get John Hembrott to do it. You know what I mean? That's what I'm trying to do in my age today is go, let them do it, okay? Because why? They won't get mad at the older one. They get mad at the younger one, right? Let John Ambrot do it. Can you imagine Nathan as he's going, what am I going to say? How am I, what's going to be the door opener? You know what I mean? We're all about door openers. Some of us don't even share the gospel because we're sitting around waiting on God to open the door. We're waiting on God to give us a sign. He's already given you a sign in chapter Matthew, right? At the end of the book, go. Make disciples of all nations. And so here we are. Nathan is like, Lord, what am I going to say? I just hope that Nathan had a long journey in order to think this stuff out. Nathan did what? He brought a parable into his mind. He set David down and told him a story about a rich man and a poor man and about some sheep. He used a parable that would be a visual illustration to stir the emotions of David. But then he hit him. And boy, did he ever hit him. And in the scripture, he hits him right across the jaw. Y'all know what I'm saying. He, he, David says, the man that has done this thing, he will restore the lamb. He will surely die, but he will restore the lamb fourfold because he did it and had no pity. And then all of a sudden the parable that was a visual illustration become a literal truth when Nathan said, you're the man. Dum-dum-dum. I mean, this is one of those times like in the old movies and stuff where it would just like, and meanwhile, what happened to this, this, this? You know, it was bad. What about when Belshazzar you know what I mean? He's there. And he's drinking out of the golden and silver vessels out of the temple, and he's getting drunk out of those things. And all of a sudden, the Scooby-Doo moment of the Word of God happens. That's my favorite part of the scriptures. You say, what do you mean the Scooby-Doo moment? The Bible says that he saw a man and a hand of a man riding on the wall, and he was riding, mine, mine tekel you know, and he was riding on the wall. And the Scooby-Doo moment was, it says that his knees begin to shake together. <laughs> I think about Shaggy and Scooby when they would get scared, you know. Terrified. What did Daniel the prophet do? He was called up to service. God said, it's time for you to step up and you're going to explain the dream to him. You're going to be called up to ministry and service. What do I need to tell them? And he begins to explain the dream with an illustration. He said, when you look at the words mine, mine, it means, and tekel, it means you're being weighed. You're found wanting and you're being weighed in the balances. And he gave him a visual illustration. And then he gave gave him the literal truth by saying, what it's talking about is your kingdom is being weighed. And today, payment is going to be required. Tonight, your kingdom will be finished. And they came in and killed the king that night. Just like in every good story, we have those same things. I want to try to look at the scripture today. I love to try to look, and let's expound on the scriptures. And I want to show you three things that are out of those scriptures, okay? You're not hungry yet, are you? I got my apple if you need it, all right? Just bear with me. In every good story, there is always the person, which is a character, a main character of the story. There's always the plot of the story, which is the ups and the downs, the twists and the turns. And then there's always the point to the story. It's always there. I love to sit with people who know how to tell a good joke. You know, there are good jokes in our lives that are really funny and they're clean and all of those good things. And some people just don't know how to share them. You know what I mean? But a person who knows how to share them lays it on thick. They know when to come in. They know when to bring the punchline in. Speaking of John Hembright, they know how to do these things, you know. Yesterday I'm on my school bus and I drive an exceptional ed bus now and waiting for a student to come out. And for some reason my aide and my my nurse on the bus began talking about uh, demonic, you know, and and when Jesus cast the demons out into the pigs. And and they said that they had somebody that was trying to convince them to never eat pork again because if you eat pork, then, then you're going to be possessed with the devil. Well, if that's true, some of you folks are legion. Okay. My dad being one of them. I waited, I waited and waited. I let my lift out on the bus. I put the lift on the ground. My young girl was coming out. I waited for my appropriate time to bring in my punch line. And while I had that button in my hand, working the controls, I just simply looked up at both of them in the bus. And I said, do you know what happened to all of those pigs? They said, no, what, what, what what happened? I said, they all committed suicide. (laughs) That's funnier than you're giving me. It's funnier than you're giving me. The right punch, I even laid the right punchline. I drew you in. See, that's what a story does. That's what a parable does. That's why Jesus was one of the greatest teachers. Because Jesus used everyday illustrations, farming and fishing, in order to help us to understand Heavenly truth because he knew people like me and probably people like you would need it because we couldn't understand some of those deep spiritual things. So let me talk to you about these three areas. Number one, let's look at the person of this scripture. Let's look at the person that's found in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse number one. You'll see it right there. I think it's boldened on the the screen here, but it says dead flies cause the ointment. Look at the person. The person is the apothecary. It is the perfumer. Some of the translations translate it as the the perfumer. The one that uh, compounds or mixes the, the spices and the perfumes together. The character or the leading person in this story is one that had to be very educated. They were probably a very talented person. They probably understood weights and balances because they had to be meticulous. They had to be uh, delicate with it. They had to be so cautious with what they were creating or what they were compounding that these people were, this was not someone that was just your average Joe. It wasn't someone that just one day walked in behind the pharmacy counter and said, you know what, I'm going to go ahead. I think I'm going to try to make some Sudafed today and just kind of, I'm going to put a little bit of this in there and we'll put a little bit of that in there. It had to be precisely and meticulously measured out in order to give the people the right amount. Even in the apothecary's life, it's a, it's a, uh, a, a ministry or it's a, uh, a career of people who not only made ointment of perfumes which smelled, but they also took those smelling perfumes and they would put medication in them so that when it was applied to the person who needed the healing, when it was applied to the person who needed the touch of God, which, by the way, my friend... I prayed all night last night and here in the church and just the Holy Spirit and the message Kyle preached about how the Holy Spirit just kind of brooded over the face of the deep in the Bible in the beginning and how just fluttered over the face of the deep. And I got to praying for my friend last night, Sherry, and and I was praying, God, I hope that the Holy Spirit is just fluttering over her bedside today. I hope that every ounce of medication that they are putting in her body with the bone marrow transplant, they're taking her body to zero. I was praying, God, let every medication, let everything they give them, even for the nausea, the uh, Toradol, all these other things, let it just do what it needs to do and let it be measured out delicately precisely so they will not harm her body. She's receiving medications that if it drops on the outside of her body, it will literally burn her skin. But yet they are putting it inside her body in order to destroy the cells of cancer. What an amazing, amazing time that we live in, that our people can receive those treatments by the hands of people who are educated, who are smarter, way smarter than me, because I just look at it and go, I don't know. I don't know what to do. There are times that I have no clue, but I do know this. I pray that the Holy Spirit, man can do what they want. Nurses can do what they want, but unless the Holy Spirit of God touches those stem cells that are in her body, which were donated by her brother, except for the hand of an almighty God working and creating and moving and doing it, we will not have hope at all. Amen? And so praise the Lord for that. That doesn't count in the message. You don't count me on that. That was just God just stirring up my heart and I get excited. That was a rabbit, but sometimes they're holy rabbits. Listen, if you talk about the work of an apothecary... It's not only in the sense of making perfume, but it was also in the art of the priesthood in the Levitical tribe. They were given duties, and God told them, he said, I want you to make certain uh, uh, anointing oils. And it's got to be precisely this. It's got to be made out of this. One of the greatest things is that in the tabernacle days, when they had the gold altar, the golden altar, the small one that was before the veil that high priest would have a certain amount of spices. It was made out of what was called stacti, uh, anica, galbanum, and pure in- uh, pure uh, frankincense. He had to take an exact amount, an exact measure, crush it up, blend it together, do it this way, and he would take a hot censer, a hot coal, uh, uh, and put it in a censer off of the brazen altar outside, and that coal was blood-soaked by the animal of the sacrifices, and he would go into that wonderful sanctuary where the table of showbread the the menorah lampstand representing the light of the world and the bread uh, of life amen and he would go to that altar and he would pray for Zach and he would pray for Steve and he would pray for Patty and he would take all of that incense that smell and he would put that hot coal on the middle of that altar in the crown of that golden altar and sprinkle all of that incense on top and it would fill that room so much that you could just smell this sweet smell all of the smells of the desert floor, all of the smells of the sacrificial animals and the guts and the burning and all of the blood that was around there and the flies and the maggots and all of the other things just dissipated out whenever he was in the moment of prayer, just like you and I, just like you and I, when we get in prayer with God, are you hearing me? when we get into prayer... Real true prayer. All those other things in the stinkiness of the world seems to fade away in his presence. Isn't that why the songwriter wrote that turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Amen. Listen, the work of the perfumer, it took time and it took effort and it took skill to do those things. And a person of virtue, a person who wants to hold their integrity It also takes time. It takes a great work ethic. It takes a lot of skill. A lot of guardrails have to be placed in a person's life. A lot of standards, morals, and ethics have to be placed in a person's life. Aren't you thankful for the ministry of Billy Graham? Aren't you thankful that throughout the life of Brother Billy Graham that there was never any infidelity or adultery or any kind of scandal that was brought up? Do you understand that before he walked into a hotel room where he was going to do a crusade or a revival meeting, that he had a team of people that went into the room before he ever stepped in to search for drug paraphernalia, to search for pornography, and to search for people, prostitutes, or whatever it may be, in that room before he went in? You may say, what a foolish person to do that. Who cares about Billy Graham that much that they would try to ruin his reputation, Satan? satan you know i had friends they're all my life i had friend i had friend he was 66 years old worked in the retail business i'll never forget walking in one day and was just talking to him i said how are you doing not doing good tears began to come off of his face i was like what do you mean he said my wife has left me i said left you what do you mean i i thought he meant had passed away no left me for another man I went home to my wife, and please don't take offense to this. I'm not talking about age and oldness and all that stuff. But I figured that if you've been married for 30, 40-plus years, and you're 66 years old, aren't you through rambling around? Can I come to that assumption, please? Not today. None of us are exempt from sin. None of us in this room are exempt from temptation... And having our integrity ruined none of us. The apothecary is the person. The plot, let's look at the plot. This is where the twists and the turns begin to take place. You look, the apothecary spends time and makes a wonderful sweet smell. But the plot, as they say, thickens, right? The plot begins to thicken. Look at what it says in verse 1 at this portion. The plot is this. What's that smell? Dead flies cause the ointment. Of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor. Dead flies cause this to happen. Usually the plot's what brings out all the actions and the causes and the storyline and stuff. Some people try to diminish this word here about that it sends forth a stinking smell or stinking savor and stuff like that. They try, we try to correct all these things. The actual Hebrew word there is bawash. Bawash. And it means putrefying. It means something that is so nasty to the point of decay. That it means like literally walking out into the dump and it, phew, the whiff comes across your nostrils and you go, oh my goodness. In 1994 in chemistry class, and I know you're thinking, Brother Steve, I didn't think you could get any smarter. You took chemistry also? Yes, I made a 60 and passed it, so don't think I'm smart. And uh, I, I'll never forget Dr., uh, 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 our uh, teacher, Mr. Sprayberry. He walked out of his closet with this brown bottle of stuff. And he said, class, I want to show you something. He opened the lid, and Steve, he did this right here, closed the lid back up. And within seconds, people were running out of the room, gagging, and about to lose everything they had inside of them. It was called butric acid. It should be called putric acid. It smells like vomit. I'll never forget it. You say, brother Steve, you remember a whole lot of things. I'll never forget that smell in my entire life. It's embedded. You know why? I was like, that's the worst stuff ever. Growing up, now you have to have butric acid. It's found in potatoes and other things like that. It's good for your stomach. It would just be better if it didn't smell like it came up from your stomach. Amen? It's that thing, that smell. And I'm going to tell you something. As much as you love people and as much as you are a forgiving group of people, sometimes it's hard and very difficult when we have watched the mighty fall, to forget it. And when someone ruins their integrity, it seems as though people won't let them get past it. I am all about grace. I am all about mercy. And thank God all about forgiveness. But let me tell you something. You are believers in Jesus Christ. I am also all about that if you know you should do right, you need to hold your integrity at a greater light. You shouldn't say, I don't care what people say about me. You should say things like Paul said, look on us as an example to the church at Thessalonica, to the church there at Philippi. Look upon us for an example. You should be like Peter and John when they walked by the guy, the gate beautiful. What did they say? Hey, look here, man, look on us. He said, silver and gold have I none. They were great preachers. They were probably Baptists. They said, we ain't got no money. He said, but what we do have in the name of Jesus Christ, we give unto you, rise up, walk, amen. And he rose up, walk, and then in the next chapter, he's leaping and jumping in the temple. You know why? Because they said, look on us about the faith. They were not saying, look at us about the power, but it's what's happening with inside of us. But what if he would have made it in the temple and he would have seen Peter doing something crazy? What if he would have seen John over there living a life of adultery and fornication? Then that man would have looked at there integrity and he would have said they are not exemplifying showing what they say that they are and I know this is what we do how dare you judge me the world judges and the people judge here's the last thing the point point. and I know you're thinking thank God we are at the last thing I usually hang out here for 30 minutes the point is this it moves from an illustration to an understanding and hopefully to repentance look at the scripture again Dead flies cause the ointment of the apothecary to send forth a stinking savor. What we've concluded from this scripture is, is that if dead flies make it in the perfume, it ruins the perfume and it smells bad. But Then all of a sudden God hits us and says, yes. And so does a little folly. So does a foolish sin in someone that's known of reputation, of wisdom and honor. God all of a sudden just goes, whoa and lays it all out there. Look at the size. Look at the size. A little folly. See, we're very good at going, well, I've not done this. This is what people say. They come up to you, man, and they go, look, I, I, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm a sinner. But, you know, I ain't killed anybody. I don't get drunk every day. I don't do all these things. And they tell Zach, you know, I know I'm a sinner, but I ain't as bad as the, the rapist or the molester and all of those things. Sinners are Sinners that are sinners, that are lost in need of a Savior. We don't come to salvation today because we need to make a decision to do good and to do better. We come to salvation because we realize we are a sinner in need of a Savior. Period. That's salvation. And we need to get back to preaching that. And in this story, listen, a dead fly, something as small as a dead fly landing on it, ruins it all. John Wycliffe said this, a man may commit one sin and this can destroy a lifetime of virtue. Wow. Let me close with a story about King Saul. I, I know, I, I appreciate your patience. I appreciate your time. And I hope that you bear with me. <clears throat> that you'll just give me just a little bit more of your attention. King Saul was a man in the beginning of his life who was a man of valor. The Bible says he was a man who stood head and shoulders above other people. <clears throat> um, when he stood before Samuel the prophet to be chosen. He was a man that was anointed by God. Like Brother Kyle preached last night, the indwelling of the Spirit happened in Acts chapter number 2. But in the Old Testament, the Bible says that the Spirit of the Lord was upon Saul, that it was on the outside, and, and that God was the one that's always sovereign and he's in control, and that Saul could do nothing without God, and without his allowance, and without his permission, and all these things. And and in his beginning of his life, you remember the prophets came down, and when they were coming down, the Bible says that Saul King Saul was so carried away by the Spirit of God that he began to prophesy too. He began to praise God and he began to sing with the people. And all of the people of his land, you know, he was a Benjamite. And all the people began to go, is Saul, the son of Kish? Is he a prophet? Man, now where did this guy come from? You know, he just immediately becomes a prophet. All these great things are happening. He's winning victories. He's winning battles. All this stuff's going on until a battle against the Amalekites. And when he goes up against them, small things begin to take place. God said, I want you to destroy everything, every cattle, every beast. I want you to destroy every uh, male, female, child, everything. He said, these people have come against me, and it is time for the judgment against them. Now, while you can be passive about that, you need to understand 400 years had passed, and the people had still not accepted the grace and the repentance of God. And God says, I am done. My spirit's not always going to strive with them. I'm done, and I want this over with because they're coming against the people. He sent King Saul, his battle man. He goes over there, and when he does... Small things happen. He takes a few sheep and he puts them over to the side. He takes the cattle and puts them over the ox and puts them to the side. He's thinking lamb chops and T-bone steaks. He takes a king and puts him in his tent thinking maybe I'll need him. Maybe God didn't want me to kill everybody. Maybe just God wanted me to do this. And because of his little decisions, because of his little folly, Saul was removed from being king. And David was anointed as king. Saul's life from that moment on, took the most downhill turn more than any other people that we can read about in that Old Testament. His life, because of some flies that got into the sweet things that God was doing in his life, because of a little folly, his life took him. Look, you know at one time that he said, we're not going to seek mediums and witchcraft and all of that stuff. We will kill anyone and have them executed that does it. But at the end of Saul's life, he tried to seek God in prayer. He tried to seek God in the Urim, the little white and black stone behind the high priest, and God wasn't answering him because God was waiting for repentance. He wasn't answering him. And so, what did he do? He went to a woman, a witch, or, or a, a medium to conjure up the dead body or the dead spirit of Samuel. And Samuel, there was, was a, I, I'm not going to go there. I don't have time to tell you what I think about that, okay? We'll talk later. Jack can invite me back. But what happened was he said, today you'll die. Did you know that he was out out in a battle uh, on Mount Geboa? Him and his sons, him and his three sons, they were fighting against the Philistines, and the Bible says that he was wounded. And when he was wounded, Saul, instead of dying in the hands of the Philistines, he would rather commit suicide. And he took a sword and he laid on it. He and his three sons were killed there on top of that mountain. The Philistines came over there, found their bodies. And you know what they did? Just like David did to Goliath, they cut the head off of Saul. And they took it and put it into the temple that they worshiped their false God took his armor and put it on their false gods in their temple. Took the decapitated body of Saul and hung him and his sons on the walls of Bethshan. Flies, maggots, stinking, it all ended in that way for Saul. I talk about it a lot, but you know that Saul was born uh, on top of a mountain that they call Tel El Ful in the Arabic language. You know what that means? Hill of beans. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? It doesn't amount to a hill of beans. It's true. You know what happens when young people see us, and I say us, you say, "Rusty, you're not old. Thank you very much for saying that. The three cuts on my back of back surgeries tell me that I am. Okay? You're not old. I am an old guy. I hung out with old people since the day I got saved. I like you. I like you better sometimes than people my age. Okay? I am an old soul. I'm an older person. I've been pastoring for 22 years. It's crazy. When we let something small happen in our lives now. It's like a bottle rocket. Shh. What does everybody say about a bottle rocket that does that? It's a dud. Bottle rockets are supposed to go shh. I like them. My favorite are the the whistler ones. POW! love stuff like that. We can't let little follies destroy. it. Let me show you these pictures. You don't know what this is. But this is a... Uh, it's called the Sir Adam Beck 1 and 2 Dam. It's above Niagara Falls. You see all that concrete. How many square yards of concrete that had to be poured? Underneath there is two five-mile channels that the water comes through and it generates power. It's like over 1,990 megawatts of power that's coming through this hydroelectric plant. It's just pouring out the power. It's just an awesome thing. From this area, there are five transmission lines. There's like 26 generators that are just pumping water, doing all these things. There's five transmission lines of power that come out of it. And on November the 9th, 57 years ago, What happened? Did the dam bust open and break and the generators break down? Did did a tornado or a big huge storm come and blow all the power lines down and all of that stuff? No. On that day at 516, one of the operation lines was protected by a 230 kilovolt transmission relay that looks like this. One of those round areas right there, one of those in the glass uh, is is a uh, power relay that actually allows it to come in and to go out. 80,000 square miles. 800,000 people trapped in subway trains and in subway stations. All because of that one, not all of them, one of them. And it wasn't even faulty. The engineer set it too low to trip too low. And so when the surging power of a growing station uh, and growing uh, people, the surging power came in, do you know what happened? It set low, it tripped. So it moved from five, and all the power shifted over to four power lines, a transmission line. And it, it shifted because it couldn't handle it. it. It tripped and tripped and tripped all the way. All five major power transmission lines tripped. And you know how long it took? 2.5 seconds. You look at me and say, bro, Steve, something that small can't make a big effect. Y'all didn't think I'd eat it. I carry a picture of me in my wallet. I mean, in my phone every day. There's a French artist who painted this picture. So many times, people think what we do don't really affect everyone. This picture is labeled as the first morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. One act of disobedience. This is Adam and Eve painted, holding the lifeless body of their son, Abel, who was killed by their other son, Cain. If they had only known the disobedience, the little folly that would cause their greatest heartache, I wonder would they have done it? There's an old song that says Search me, O God, and know my heart today. Try me, O Savior. It comes from Psalms 51 where he's saying see if there be any wicked way in me I'm not mad at you I love you I'm pleased with you but I'm warning you just as well as I warn myself every time I look at this picture I'm not exempt just because I'm at a certain age I'm not exempt I'm not above the fact of sin and the temptation of sin Neither are you and I. One fly in the ointment of the apothecary stinks. And you may not agree with me on this. But when I was called to preach, I knelt down and I had a man pray over me. Cowboy boot-wearing, country preacher. Loud, loud in my ear. When he spoke, he would say, Master, God Almighty, Creator. He was right in my ear. I'm praying for this young man. It's on Mount Olive Road. I'm praying for this young man. I'm praying, Lord, that you help him as he preaches the word. But I pray, this is what he said, but I pray if he gets out of your will, if he is tempted to fall away into sin, that you kill him. I'm I'm in prayer. I'm trying to focus. Jesus, I love you. Thank you for these people praying for me. That you kill him. No, God, don't listen to him. God, no. No. God, no, no. I promise, I can tell you this with all my heart. I, can, I promise you this is the truth for me. This is not an elaborate exaggeration. The older I get, I would rather be in heaven with him than to bring a reproach against his name. I would rather God take me out than to hurt the heart of my wife. Or the hurt, the integrity that I have with my sons. And then with you. If we would only ask God what the end result could be before we go out and allow a fly to enter in, we would do better. Can I pray for you? Father. Father. I ask you, Lord, that you would just move and speak. That, God, that you would just hover over this place as you've been in these days. Lord, there is the move of the Spirit. Lord, we know that you're working. We thank you. God, I don't know where people are. I don't read their mail. I don't read their email. But, God, you know. Your scripture says the eyes of the Lord are upon them. And, Lord, you know. You know the way of the righteous. You know the way of the wicked. You know all things. And God, maybe there's someone here today, this morning, who maybe by reason of age or by reason of ministry years have gotten to the place where they think they're exempt from sin and they're being tempted. They're thinking about things. Maybe today they confess. Maybe today, Lord, through the parable and proverb of the illustration that gives a visual that God hopefully the plot and the point of the story today has brought them to the place that now brings repentance that they've understood like David did you're the man you're the woman God help us to not be bitter to not be stinky to this world and to hold our integrity fast it doesn't always have to be Lord adultery pornography, addictions of alcohol or drugs. Sometimes, Lord, we could just stink because of the words that we say, the attitudes that we carry around of rudeness and selfishness. And I pray that these people that are here today, your people, Lord, would speak to you. They would have this time of invitation that they could say, Lord, if I have stunk, if I have sinned, Sending out a a smell that's unpleasing. I'm sorry. If I've not held fast my integrity. I'm sorry. Search us God today. With heads bowed. You may not be able to come and physically kneel. You may not be able to stand up and come and do that. You can come down here and sit on the altar. You could sit on the front if that's what you want to do in response that you can also, right there where you're at, have the same power and ability and privilege to be able to speak to God and ask Him to take an inventory of your life, an evaluation of who you are and how you're living and what you're showing to other people. Maybe you, like me at times, have thought, I don't care what people say about me, and today you've realized, I need to care what people think about me and say about me because I'm a child of God. I'm a representation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you just need that opportunity to speak to him. Brother Zach's going to come, and he's going to close out in this invitation time. Please mind the Lord. And thank you for listening.